Welcome to another episode of Across the Pond, Marketing Transformed. And you've got me, Samuel Moni, here and my awesome co-host, Chris Lawson. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I'm doing great. I think I say awesome at least five times an episode. You do, but you don't normally say it about me. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. I, 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 sorry. I, okay. You've been obviously listening very carefully. Anyway, um, we've got a great, great guest today. A wonderful, wonderful woman called Yin Rani. She's Chief Executive Officer of Milk Pet. And she's really driving bold strategy and breakthrough consumer communications to help encourage milk consumption across a $25 billion industry on behalf of America's milk companies. She's got 25 years of integrated marketing experience across CPG companies. And prior to joining Milk Pet, Yin was Chief Customer Experience Officer at Campbell's Soup and did a lot of work in modernizing marketing and content and media, MarTech, digital, as well as improving the business trajectory. Shameless plug, had an awesome fortune of working for Yin uh, when we were at Campbell's. So I miss those days and really loved working for her. And before before joining Campbell's, she was president of North America of Universal McCann. And finally, her LinkedIn bio, I love, which just says, change, collaboration, ideas, people, and data. Welcome, Yin. Thank you so much, Sam. And thank you so much, Chris, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, it's great having you. Um, we might as well just get into it. And you've had these senior leadership roles on both the agency side and client side, which is so fascinating. Deep branding, you've got business, creative experiences. So what inspired you to enter the, the agency side of things in the first place? You know, I wish I had a better plan for my life because people always ask me that question. And it, it was a little bit serendipitous. I wanted a job that had some global reach because, as you know, I grew up in Asia. So I wanted a job where I could work here in America and eventually return home. But that didn't work out. But basically, I was networked my way into the job. It was a college roommate's father who helped me find a way into the agency life. Mm-hmm. And I think as a liberal arts major, it just made a ton of sense because I always laugh about liberal arts major. If they don't teach you anything, but they teach you to have the confidence that you can learn almost anything. <laughs> um, and that, that's actually super useful in the agency world because, you know, you suddenly wake up one day and you're an expert on toilet paper or fabric softener or hair care. And it is about ideas and analysis and collaboration. And so I stumbled my way into it, but obviously it was a good fit for my dilettante nature because I stayed in it for um, 18 years, I guess. Wow. And so I'm listening to you there and you stumble into it. And I love this liberal arts, but isn't that, as, as I say, a strength, right? Because you are on the agency side, learning lots of different categories. You mentioned toilet paper and I think other food. What, what sorts of areas have you had to become an expert or you know, proficient at, shall we say? <laughs> oh my goodness, the list is varied and random. And I'm always gathering the Triple Pursuit dream team from my agency friends because agency people have the most obscure bodies of knowledge. I mean, you, Sam, have worked lots, across lots of businesses. But the average agency person, you've been, when you were at it as long as I was, I mean, I know a lot about hair care. I know a lot about probiotic fiber supplements, if you ever wanted to know, antacids. That doesn't often come up in trivial pursuit, though, does it? <laughs> to be honest. No, no. Well, there's a special marketing and advertising version of trivial pursuit that I will create. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> um, oh, I could, I could go on. I know a lot about um, board games, actually, which is a huge privilege to work on things like Candyland, Operation, oh, all kinds of things. It's just, it makes it really helpful at a cocktail party. Um, but other than that, not not exactly clear what all the all that body of knowledge is for. What a re- renaissance lady, you, you know, a little bit about a lot of things. And so you did that for, you said, about 18 years. And then you 
went to the other side. The I won't, I won't use the Star Wars analogy for those, you know, the dark side or the or the light side. You you changed for, um, and what what kind of led to that change to the more the client side? I know I still call it the dark side, which I probably shouldn't because I think I'm officially a client now. Though I still <laughs> feel like a client on training wheels most days. Um, what led me to that? You know, again. I, I didn't actually start out on that journey with a plan to go client side. I started with a very clear map of the kind of work I wanted to do and the kinds mm-hmm. of things I wanted to impact. And frankly, one of the big driving forces was integration. And as you know, Sam, I'm obsessed with integration on the marketing front. And it's such a fragmented ecosystem. And it's increasingly hard, I think, to bring all those tools together. But then again, it's never been a better time to be in marketing because there's all these great tools. One of the reasons I went from creative agency to media agency is I believe that media agencies could be a better spine potentially because so many dollars flow through that system. Um, and so when I was investigating what to do next and I talked to people, people basically said back to me, just as clients get the creative that they deserve, they get the integration that they demand. And so I heard time and time again, if you're serious about integration, the best seat to drive that from rightly or wrongly is on the client side. And then again, you know, I'm blessed with a great network and was able to be introduced to our former boss, uh, Mike Snackrib. And, you know, God bless him for taking a risk on an agency refugee and bringing me to the dark side. And it was the funnest version of the dark side ever, as you know, because Mike's theme song at Campbell's Soup was Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie because he was an amazing boss. And I just talked to him recently. So that's how I that's what led me there, basically. What did you have to learn or unlearn looking back and shifting to the client side? Oh, dear, Sam. I mean, it was so humbling, I have to say. I mean, really, the biggest thing I learned was that marketing, big M marketing and little M marketing communications is such a small part of a company's day-to-day operations, and maybe particularly in a manufacturing environment like CPG. Mm-hmm. You know, when you are an agency person, even a very senior one, you know, you sort of have this illusion that CMOs are like the masters of the universe, and they just wanted to do things they could, and all they need is budget and courage. Yes. And then you show up internally, you're like, oh, dear God, really? Oh, wow, this is hard. You're like, oh, like physical objects coming out of factories. Oh, wow. And then, you know, in food particularly, you know, the, the running joke on pace is every spring we ran out of peppers. And you can't <laughs> manufacture new peppers. You know, in agency life, it's all dollars and money. And if you just throw money at it and throw people at it, you can solve a lot of problems. But you literally, you can't manufacture red peppers out of the sky. Very, very humbling, I must say. So anyway, I, I learned a lot about how marketing operates within a larger enterprise ecosystem and why, you know, for marketing to earn its seat at the table, it has to respect that enterprise, speak the language of finance, speak the language of supply chain when necessary. So that was a very big learning. And then the other thing I learned, which is how useful, in fact, some agency side skills are within a corporate environment, because frankly, a lot of corporate environments is about stakeholder management and influence and leading through change when you don't have direct authority. And those are plenty of the dark arts that I gathered on the agency side and have stood me well as I've come onto the client side. I don't often get this chance to ask this question much, but how did you then get into milk? You know, it was, again, I never have a plan. I know I'm a bad role model for all the people living out there, all the young people, you should have a plan. Do not do what I do. You know, I was actually going to be a full-time consultant. I had been consulting for almost a year and enjoying it. And the job came open. Someone posted this job description on this very long email database list. He has the recruiter, a guy called David Weiser. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then literally within a few days, five of my friends sent (laughs) the job description back to me and said, have you looked at this? It sounds like you. 
And I was like, no, I haven't actually looked at this. And so then I called David and I went through the interview process and decided to to take the gig. It's a very interesting job because it's all pure Maracom. Mm. I get to be attached to a very large, important industry, but to focus on the Maracom piece, which is really my my passion and my expertise. The, the size and the scale of this compared to, to what happens in the UK just looks absolutely um, gigantic. So milk consumption is 25 billion pound industry. Is that correct? 25 billion dollars. Um, but dairy is much bigger. I think dairy is like 40 or 50 and growing because actually outside milk, cheese consumption has grown. Gangbusters, yogurt has grown, especially re- recently with the Greek yogurt. Uh, boost ice cream growing particularly during covid so it's a huge business in, in america it's i think the second or third largest beverage category in grocery stores after after water and i guess csd uh, yeah that's absolutely staggering so so what what surprised you so far how have you found it in comparison you know, it's a great gig for me, as I was saying to Sam the other day. You know, I feel like I've been really training for this job my whole career and not realizing it. What has been surprising so far, I think, is, you know, A, how big the industry is and like how much good there is. I think, you know, as a classic sort of Northeastern 1% liberal elite member, you hear a lot of the chatter, the negative chatter, you know, that milk is dead and the plant-based everything is taking over. And the reality is quite different. I mean, we sell more regular dairy milk in a day than oat milk sells in a year. Wow. But you might not think that on the reputational side. So it's been wonderful to see just how robust the industry actually is. And the product itself, I mean, it's really nice to work on a product that has so much nutrition and wellness benefits. I mean, you know, in CPG, you you spend a lot of time wandering around trying to find meaningful claims of what the product actually can do and that you can legally say. And in milk, you're swimming in functional claims. Those have been all great things. And I think the last thing that's been surprising is how open for change the industry is. Mm. So that to me, when they interviewed, and I was very relentless on this topic, I was, I was like, do you really want me? <laughs> and it, like, I know you want an outsider, but I am a real outsider, right? Really, really outside the box. And they've been great. The board has been very supportive. The industry has been very welcoming, very patient with me. And I think, you know, it's an industry that needs change, part one. I think, weirdly enough, COVID probably helped me on that front because there was so much disruption in so many aspects that probably the appetite for change was enhanced, not diminished. Like a lot of CPG and a lot of CPG food, we benefited on the retail side in terms of consumption and therefore purchase. We were more badly affected in the school system and in food service. The coffee shops have done a little better than some other sectors. So, you know, it's just it was a better year for milk sales than it has been. So Mm. I think that gave people a little win in the sales. But probably the most notable piece of change that I brought about was reintroducing Got Milk, which, as you know, probably in the UK is a very celebrated campaign with a lot of history. It had been retired for all kinds of very, very good reasons six years ago. And I had been toying with the idea of maybe bringing it back in the future and doing the thing one does. You know, I was, we would research it. I would, you know, concept test it. I qualitative it, <laughs> lots of things. And then last year, we are an Olympic sponsor. So our Olympic program wasn't able to be deployed, obviously, until this year. And so we were frankly scrambling a little bit of what to do in that place. And the agency had a very strong platform idea and they had written a lot of lines for it, but they came back, God bless them, and said, we actually think you could put got milk on this 
And I like wrestled with it for a weekend. I called everybody I knew. I said, am I doing this for the right reasons? What's the upside? What's the downside? And then by Monday, we decided to do it. I told the board a few days later, and then we just went and did it. And, you know, it's a huge privilege to be able to bring back something that iconic, you know, over a weekend, right? I mean, when does that happen? Can you tell us a little bit more more about that that gut milk campaign? Because I th- um, yes, for the overseas global audience, I'm not sure how much they they know about it. So tell us the history and why this is such a meaningful campaign. Yeah, gut milk ran for 20 plus years and continues to run in California uninterrupted because it's actually the brainchild of the California Milk Processor Board. So I would be remiss not to give them a wonderful shout out and the talent that could be who invented the line originally. Um, and they have a long history in California of doing great work against the line. Um, for the national program, the thing we're best known for is the Milk Mustache campaign, where it was, a, you know, a very, a very print-heavy campaign. Every celebrity you can think of probably from the 90s and early aughts was in it, and it was a very recognizable, memorable campaign. And so we saw a huge rise in social media chatter about milk during the pandemic, not just in volume, but also in positive sentiment. There was almost a 40% increase in positive sentiment. And so we just basically, we turned the camera back on America and we use lots of user-generated content and cut them into... And for me, there was something just sort of wonderfully subversive about moving from the celebrity model of the past, which the Milk Mustache did a wonderful job of leveraging, to what the celebrity mean today. Because everybody's a celebrity. Everyone's a creator. <laughs> everyone has a story to tell, a video to share. Right. And on our first TikTok outing, our sponsored TikTok outing, we achieved, I think, something over 4 billion views. Wow. 3 billion of which were in the first few weeks. And so... Um, TikTok just throws up these huge numbers, which you frankly almost can't believe, to be honest. But we were very deliberate that it wouldn't just be bringing back either the deprivation campaign or the milk message campaign just as is, but it would be a new interpretation of it for today. So you, I, I can use this word now. So you, you sort of caught the zeitgeist. You know, the zeitgeist last year was so chaotic with <laughs> with COVID and Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, particularly we wanted to attract a youthful audience. And so... You know, they, social media, they, they're the original, the first social media generation. Social media has never not existed for, mm-hmm. for many young people. So I think so. We got enormous engagement, great numbers. The business, the category is up 2% at retail after being down for many years. No credit to me. That was A lot of that is COVID behavior. But the response to the campaign has been tremendous. See, what I love about that is that it's a combination of everything that marketing is about, isn't it? It's about anticipation of trends. There's some evidence based in there. It's about using the most appropriate channels. And it's a great creative idea. And and understanding that actually sometimes the best ideas are ideas that already happen and then revamping them for a modern world. So thinking back to your, your LinkedIn profile, that change, collaboration, ideas, people, data, so, so if that if that's a pie chart, how how does your job break down? Where would you put those percentages? That's a good question. I mean, it probably depends. It probably depends on the day, and you know, it can go from eighty percent something to two percent something else. I mean, one of the wonderful things about marketing and advertising, particularly, is that every day is so different. But if I had to say over a more macro level versus a day, you know, I am. I'm re- relentlessly people-oriented, I think, as Sam knows, and I describe myself as talent-obsessed, and maybe that's a little bit of my agency upbringing. So, you know, I try to spend a lot of time on the people that work for me, the people in my agency group that we hugely value and depend on, 
and the people in my larger stakeholder group, the board, the industry, my sister association. So when in doubt, I always kind of come back to the people. I think that I've seen time and time in my own career that people, I really do believe this, people are the ultimate differentiator. They are. They are the ultimate competitive advantage. I mean, so many times, especially if you've been involved in turnarounds like I have, nothing has changed except the people. So if I had to pick all those things and had to bet on something, I would bet on the people. So who are the transformation leaders, the thought leaders that you look up to and you sort of think, actually, do you know what? They're talking a lot of sense of a moment. You know, I'm lucky to have such a great network of, of wonderful, thoughtful people, some who are more well-known and some who are less well-known. I've worked with an executive coach. His name is Rob Elliott. If anybody wants to hire him, you should, except you probably can't get a slot because he's super busy. We, I got a chance to hear from um, Raja from MasterCard a couple of nights ago at an Asian-American CMO event, and he's always been a great inspiration. He's he's so thoughtful. He's generous. Um, he's of you know, Asian descent, and he, he just published a new book. So he's someone that I think a lot about because MasterCard is also a very pure branding exercise, much as Milk is. I mean, I'm a huge student of marketing. My husband teases me that marketing is my hobby as well as my profession. So I have, you know, books upon books, blogs upon blogs. Rashad Tabakawala, another great thinker who I've known from very early in my career. You know, his last book is also very inspiring. So I don't know, I could I could publish you a whole uh, a whole blog on people that I, that I read and follow, to be honest, Chris. There's so much learning out there. I think sometimes we lose track of what other options there are for us as you look through your own lens. It is hard. I mean, you know, I think the political sphere, at least in this country, there definitely is a bit of an echo chamber effect in politics. And so from a marketing standpoint, I always try, in fact, to get out of my own marketing echo chamber. And I will, you know, try to follow or read people that either I don't agree with or I don't know. I think it's healthy to try to introduce diversity into mm. your sort of intellectual fabric just as a matter of discipline. I'm US-based, so for the listeners here, there's multitude of news channels, but I do flip between the Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, but also Deutsche Welle, which is the German, and Rayuno to Italy, and of course the beloved prestigious BBC. And it's interesting when you do get those different inputs, but from your side, what, what makes you kind of check different sources you know partially I, I really do believe in debate if that makes sense mm-hmm. and I, I, mm-hmm. I love nothing more than having divergent viewpoints to sift through to sharpen my own thinking mm-hmm. um, I think it's also because I, I as I mentioned I grew up in Asia and I grew up in Singapore specifically which is a mm-hmm. very multicultural a very open economy my husband is from India and so we spend you know a lot of our lives are very connected to a region that is quite different than the one we operate in Mm. And, you know, so I read, for example, every edition of the campaign magazine. I read the UK edition, the US edition and the Asian edition. Wow. And it's just fascinating to see how different topics are, are conveyed. And so, you know, to pick on an old topic, uh, you know, we kept saying in the US, it's the year of mobile, it's the year of mobile, it's the year of mobile until it was like the decade of mobile. But if you follow Asia, I mean, they adopted mobile technologies. <laughs> they just leapfrog basically over much desktop be it either the smartphone side of things mm-hmm. or in India, some more flip phones. And I think it's good to be humble and to be a student of wherever you can get a good idea from. Yeah, I love that student of, of good ideas. And my heritage is British, but Ghanaian heritage. And for me, the when I was last out there, the thing which I, I saw vividly was very few people had landlines because because they weren't reliable, didn't work, but everyone had at least one cell phone. And it was just the perception of what you might perceive on media versus the reality of people's behavior. So that's why all those payment systems and all sorts of yeah. systems are so much further 
ahead of perhaps in other countries that people are surprised that they're so sophisticated, but actually they've jumped to technology and now have become proficient. I did want to capture the the piece about people. And I, I can personally attest to that. I know you said you go back to the people and you said this quote that I know if you realize, you know, when in doubt, always go come back to the people. And I just love that quote. And I can attest to how important that was to you in terms of the culture, diversity, self-development and training. And, and it's been really important to you. But um, we, we did a bit of prep before this show. You, you, you told me a story about your connection to chief diversity officers. I don't know if you could share with the audience, because that was just a fascinating I think an insight that you saw when you started looking at your LinkedIn network. Yeah, I mean, as as you know, I've been involved with the DEI conversation for a long time in, in various aspects. And I've become recently involved with a friend who's starting something to help support chief diversity officers. But when I was doing a bit of investigation on LinkedIn to help her, I realized that I had like 40 plus first party contacts with chief people who carry chief diversity officer titles. And if you go one more circle out, it goes into the tens of thousands. And so... I know it's, it's interesting because I've always valued that. I've always valued talent. I've always valued diverse talent. I think there's always more to be done. So in every company that I've worked in, I've always gone to find the chief diversity officer and partner with them. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. remember Elizabeth Morrison from Campbell's. And the first time when I tracked her down, when I had just started, she said, she said nobody ever does that. She said, I usually <laughs> come and hunt down new executives. No one's ever called me first. So I said, well, I am here, Elizabeth, and I'm here to help. And so I think it's just become, been rather organic and it's a tough gig as you know Mm. and so sometimes as a business leader who has some more operational leeway I just think it's important for executives like me to lean in and help DEI officers and you know I think the big sin is it's not a HR function if you think of DEI as only HR or only compliance even worse Mm. (laughs) you've lost you've lost before you've begun I mean, it's, it is such a systems problem, as you know, and so it's hard to give a simple silver bullet answer. What I have seen is it, companies and industries make the most progress when someone at the top is truly deeply committed to it because they can change enough parts of the system to make change. In my experience, if you change only one thing in the system, it helps. But when a leader is committed and leaning in and really designing a company and a culture both from the qualitative side to the things you measure and reward, that's when you see real progress. And, you know, I think I admire David Kenny, for example, at Nielsen for taking mm-hmm. on the chief diversity officer title, right. the CEO title. Michael Ross at IPG, where I was privileged to work, he has real, comp- there's a real compensation aspect to it, probably not mm-hmm. as deep as, as some people want, but more mm-hmm. than I've seen in other holding companies. And knowing Michael Ralph pretty well, you know, maybe because he grew up in New York, it's very authentic for him. I mean, he's like, I get it. You know, just making sure everyone is on a level playing field and has access is super important. So if it's not the leader at the top, there has to be commitment enough that this, that you're committed to making the system work. And it's not one person's job. It's not three people's job. The system must enable it. Something you said earlier on, which really struck me was around considering sort of milk alternatives and and how much uh, is sort of drunk across the year of sort of dairy how do you make room for both so how does your current role work with the sort of the rise of plant-based alternatives it's a great question i mean the reality in the u.s is almost 40 percent of households drink both i mean they all almost all tend to drink more dairy than plant with some exceptions so you know we believe in a big tent we, we want to make sure that the virtues and benefits of dairy milk are understood and, and accurate, I think, would be the big thing. But, you know, I am trained by my early PNG experiences, you know, that the consumer is boss. 
And so, you know, I, if consumers have chosen that and they keep that in their uh, portfolio, you know, I respect that. And my job is not necessarily to bash other people, but to make sure that the facts of my category are well understood, because I think there is a lot of misconception. And I, I feel like the plant-based group has begun to win the perceptual and reputational battle. And so mm-hmm. one of the things we're very focused at MOPEP is sort of, as we call it, reclaiming the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, on the positive side, not necessarily to take down anybody else, because as I said, you know, when 40% of people are drinking both, that is a very valid choice. Um, but we need to tell our story more loudly and more proudly. So what we're going to do now, we're going to move on to a quick fire round just to, to get your gut reaction, really, in terms of some of the things that are on your mind of a moment. So first question, what's top of your reading list of a moment? Well, like I mentioned, I just got Roger's book sent to me, Quantum Marketing. What's your biggest marketing regret? Oh, it's hard. I've been more lucky than not. I guess at Campbell's, as you know, Sam, I, I think we were on the verge of something really interesting and just starting to build it. So I'm I'm probably sad that we didn't get mm. to see that journey with Denise and Mike towards the future of food all mm. the way through. What's the most important element of a marketing and comms strategy to get right? My natural inclination is to say the strategy, but I'm in my long career, I'm now going to say the execution. Isn't that terrible? Let's say strategy is execution, execution is strategy. That way you can sleep well at night. Well, thank you. That makes me feel better, though. I always describe my personal brand as strategy in action. So I've also tried to straddle that, but no one sees the PowerPoint. No one sees the brief. <laughs> no, that's true. All they see is the execution, be it the product or the app or the ad or the TikTok thing. So execution, execution, execution. But great execution comes from a great strategy. Yeah. I must make a plug for my, my dear old friend strategy. <laughs> so. What is the biggest change you've seen in marketing, in terms of marketing transformation over the last few years? You know, it's interesting. I would say in the last couple of years it's been i feel like there's been a bit of a pendulum swing back away from data only digital only analytics only to something where more fundamental things like purpose Mm. and brand building and consumer insight i feel like i'm beginning to try to claw their way back (laughs) into the conversation yay at least as demonstrated by perhaps ana's programming choices you know, I think they're both super important, but you know how the pendulum swings. So I'm personally excited to see a, a marketing ecosystem that values all parts of the equation equally and that each of them serves their role because mm. neither data nor purpose will ever give you the answer uh, entirely. But to ignore one or the other, I think, is not a, not a representation of how marketing works. And, and I think the other reality as well, when you, you look at it, is obviously throughout your career you've covered so much and you do need to take that sort of rounded approach and understand that you know one element leads on to the second element so yin it's been great having you here today really lovely to meet you first time i've met you so thank you very much for spending the time with us my pleasure it was it was fun i'm uh, marketing is my hobby so i can always talk about it <laughs> I always call myself a marketing dork and Sam and I are both card carrying members of that club. So I can, I can use it effectively with him also. <laughs> so. Yes. I'm a, I'm a fellow marketing dork and uh, hopefully Chris, you want to join our special club. We'll see. <laughs> but anyway, on that bombshell, I shall leave it there and say thanks again, everyone. So until next time, have a great week across the pond. So if you're an entrepreneur, rising star or CMO looking for new ideas, 
Find us at marketingtransform.com and on Spotify, Apple, Google, and all good podcast platforms.